are entering the Freedom Hut. A media smackdown courtesy of a former Navy SEAL and current congressman who teaches the left a lesson in what undermining the First Amendment really means. Also, Antifa running wild out in Portland, Oregon. We have somebody who was on the front lines telling you just what happened there and how crazy it got. Plus, finally, election results from Georgia and Florida. The good guys won, but the bad guys aren't done yet. That and more coming up. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to be back here with you on Monday after my uh, brief absence last, uh, well, I was with you on Friday, so I just was gone on Thursday, but I missed you nonetheless. And I, I want to say that I had one of these, one of these times where I saw finally somebody articulate on TV something that I've been saying for a while that I, an idea that I've been pushing. I'm not saying I'm the only one. I just, I, I finally saw somebody who really hit the ball out of the park. And you have Congressman on this particular issue, Congressman Crenshaw, who is, as you know, former Navy SEAL. He's, you know, he is because he's the he's the Navy SEAL who has an eye patch. Who's now a congressman. He's from Texas. All indications, everyone I've talked to you about him is a great guy. He's a patriot, and I think he's got a very, not just a bright political future, but a big political, a big political future. I'm expecting there to be big things ahead uh, for him. But he was on, uh, what was it, Meet the Press, one of these Sunday shows. They all blur together. It's all the same thing to me. It's just somebody acting all serious who has other people write questions for them, asking politicians questions on Sunday. I mean, it's it's, it's kind of all a variation on the same show. Uh, but on, on one of these shows, you had Crenshaw and a panel of, obviously, libs, and a lib host, uh, Margaret Brennan, who's a liberal. And you have all these libs together. And, you know, there's this conversation about Acosta. Oh, he got... He got his pass back because of a judge and his hard pass into the White House. I know this is such an unimportant story, but the press makes it very important. But for our purposes, I think it does illustrate a a larger, more important truth about how the media covers Trump and what's really at the center of the the fight between Trump and the media. So so I, I do think there's some important components here, important aspects. And I, I do I do want to uh, get to that. But Crenshaw's there. He's on this panel. And you know this because we talk about it. one of the main criticisms of Trump that you hear from people who think that they're being so smart and so eloquent. They will say that Trump undermines the First Amendment. He undermines our democracy. He undermines democracy, which is a very serious charge. When you really break that down, when you look at this, when you when you not just listen to the words, but dive into the definition undermines our democracy is really a a charge of sedition or at least quasi seditious behavior trump is kicking at the foundations of our republic that's just another way of saying the same thing trump is a danger to our democracy and in the left's mind that means a danger to our way of life Trump must be a danger to America itself if what they say about him is true. 
And so that's the context for this discussion with, as I said, uh, former Navy SEAL Congressman. We'll just call him Congressman Crenshaw. Now you know who he is. And there was this moment, this aha moment, where he just asks the most basic but most important question, one that under the circumstances took uh, a, a bit of skill to pull off because I, 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 I know what it's like to be on these panels. You're surrounded by libs. And you get swept up in the world. I, I guess they can't all be crazy because they're all agreeing with each other. You know, you, when you're watching it, you know. But when you're in it, you're like, wait, are these people, these are political analysts. Can they all be so wrong? The answer is yes, they can. Crenshaw was having none of it. Play clip one. Freedoms and the principles that we live by um, have been under attack for the better part of the last two years. Congressman, like, do you want to respond to that since the president has is the leader of your party? Yeah. Well, I, I always ask the question, like, like what you know like what is he undermining exactly like, you know what what democratic freedoms have been undermined we just had an election where we switched switched power in the house democracy is at work people are voting and in, in, in record numbers um I, I always ask for examples and then we can hit those examples one by one and if it's and if it's worth criticizing it's worth criticizing but just kind of this broad brush criticism that the president is somehow undermining our democracy i always wonder like, what exactly we're talking I'll about be happy. You know, they're all freaking out because he's going right to the heart, right to the center of the big lie from the left here. They all like to say this. They all like to make all these big proclamations. Oh, my gosh, you know, he's undermining our democracy. And he asks the question that I ask all the time on this show. What does that even mean? What, what are you trying to say? What are you saying? It's really just a more refined way of saying Trump is a fascist. How is he a fascist exactly? He's a fascist. But no, no, he's not. And Congressman-elect Crenshaw's point about how we just had a peaceful transition and we're going to have or we're about to have a peaceful transition. We just had free and fair elections. The system is working fine. Our democracy is fine. And Trump is the president and has been for going on two years. So where is this undermining of democracy? But uh, this this panel, oh, my gosh, he's, he's going after our favorite. This is their favorite talking point. This is the left's favorite toy. Trump is undermining our democracy. This is what you say when you're a lib journalist who wants to sound smart but has nothing to say. Undermining our democracy. That's a, that's a nonsense, nonsense phrase. It's blather. It is nincompoopery on an epic scale. It has no meaning other than to convey an emotion, which is Trump bad, Trump terrifying. Oh, no, what are we going to do? Trump's so bad. Why? They don't, they don't worry themselves with such things. Play clip two. I'm happy to give an example. Yeah. I mean, right. the undermining of the freedom the free of the press, judiciary, CIA, FBI, the voting process. Obama indicted it was, sure. had many press members under investigation. Trump is not. So just so what is so what is so what is the difference? Just this last week, one of the largest media publications in the United States, right, had to go to a federal court in order to essentially uh, regain access no, that was to for the one press reporter. room. One reporter, it, not the whole, not the whole organization, including CBS, did file amicus. Um. Booyah! Slap down there. You see that? That was a bit of a fly kick to the face of that argument. 
It was just one reporter, but notice, and Crenshaw does a very good job, very calm. He's not raising his voice or anything. He's just addressing all the things it's saying. This whole table full of, full of lib journos that are all invited to meet the press. I've never heard of any of those people, by the way. Uh, a very, very, very third tier rotation on meet the press, apparently. Uh, but or is it meet the press or maybe it's, it's CBS this morning? I don't know. It's one. Of, it's the CBS show with Margaret Brennan that's on on Sunday. They're all boring. They're all the same. But Notice how here's the here's their moment, right? They're all trying to jump in. Oh my gosh, I was, l- l- like they have this this really important, powerful point to make about how Trump undermines our democracy, right? About how Trump is this terrible authoritarian tyrant, fat, all this stuff. And where where do they go when he? Remember, Crenshaw's asking for actions. What has he done? Pulling Acosta's. Face the nation. Thank you, Bruce. Mike pulling Acosta's hard pass. Pulling Acosta's hard pass. That's that is the thing that they go to. That is top of the list. The hard pass that he already has back that did not bar him even from the White House that he more than deserved to be barred from for acting like a total idiot continuously. And. That didn't even mean that his news organization did not have access anymore. I don't have a hard pass. Why don't I have a hard pass? I want a hard pass. Someone get me a hard pass. I'm going to go sue. Oh, you can't take it away. That's the infringement. But, well, it's an infringement if I can't have one. Why give one to Clown Acosta? Buck would actually make good use of it. But the point here is that that's the best they can do on the spot. That's what they come up with. That tells you a lot, doesn't it? I think that's, I think you could say that's very instructive for what's really going on here, which is that this is all about hyperventilating from the left. This is all about, oh my gosh, you know, what What are we going to do? Trump is evil and, you know, he's orange and it's all so scary. And Crenshaw very calmly just points this out, makes that case. This is a talking point that is held up with nothing. This is just a protestation of self-righteous idiocy. That Trump is undermining our democracy. How? They mention all this stuff. Oh, CIA, the press. What, he can't criticize these things? Undermine them? He criticizes them. He doesn't. Ta- he's not taking any executive action that shuts them down or that threatens people with prison or anything. That th- That's real authoritarian stuff. That's real threat to democracy. He doesn't do any of that. Nothing. And if he did, I would oppose him, as would other conservatives. But he doesn't. They're just living in a fantasy land of their own creation here. The whole journalist complex is full of people who are deluded. They are delusional on this. And Crenshaw wasn't even done with them. Play the last one. Play three. How is that? How is that an attack on the press, though? Because it's literally an attack. I've literally been attacked. So I I, I, let's choose our words carefully. His language is an attack. Okay, so why can't he speak? Why? Why is he not allowed to use his own? language and freedom of speech because you, and you talked about this actually it's important that we lead from example that we lead from the top and the way that our uh, president you, is I, currently I agree with leading. you there okay but you know, do you see the pivot there that she just made first of all crenshaw who lost his eye to an ied in combat is like can we chill with the whole like attack thing all the time you know he says choose your words he's right but notice how he says okay why can't he criticize them and she immediately this, whoever that journalist is switches to this, oh, well, we need better leadership, whatever. Okay, but that's not what they're saying. 
the criticism isn't, which would be a completely valid one. I mean, I would disagree with it, but the criticism of we need Trump to be a better leader, that's fine. We should say that about every president. We should want every president to be better than they are. If we want the best. And the criticism of, oh, I don't like his style or he's vulgar, fine. I, I can understand that. I didn't I didn't like his uh, Adam Schiff tweet over the weekend. I mean, there are things the president says or does that I don't like. And I'll tell you that here on the show when it happens. The Adam Schiff tweet is one of them. I didn't like that. I didn't think it was clever or worth I, I think I thought that was below the president, but it's also not a big deal. Who cares? They're saying he's undermining democracy. They're saying he is a fundam- he's engaged in a fundamental attack on the First Amendment and is threatening the very foundations of this country. They say it over and over and over again. And when pushed for actual evidence of this, action of this, what do they have? He took Acosta's hard pass the White House away for a day. Oh my gosh. I guess, I guess we all should join the hashtag resistance. Journalism will never recover from this, my friends. And this is the little secret that they don't seem to understand. Journalism, as they've known it on the left and in the mainstream media, shouldn't recover from this. It should be something else. It should be something better, something more honest and more self-reflective. Less fake newsy, you could say. And by the way, I like that the president uses that phrase. I like that he holds their feet to the fire on it. I hope he continues to do so. We've got a lot more coming up this hour. Also going to talk to you about Antifa, big Antifa story. Got somebody to tell you about what that was like being out there. And uh, stay with me, team. In the midst of all the whining coming from the left, I mean, it's just crazy these days, right? They're chasing people out of restaurants, yelling at you in the coffee shop, acting like a bunch of maniacs. You have to wonder, why in the world would anyone act this way? My guess is, they're just not getting their daily dose of Black Rifle coffee. I drink Black Rifle every morning. In fact, it's such delicious coffee that I'm usually a guy that likes a little con leche in my coffee. But guess what? I drink it black, because it's Black Rifle for one. And also, this is delicious, small batch, roast-to-order coffee, all right? I am a silence for smooth blend guy, but their entire catalog of different beans and blends is amazing. Black Rifle is roast to order and is guaranteed fresh right to your door. Nothing cures a bad attitude like starting your day with the most American coffee ever, Black Rifle Coffee. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. Receive 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck. The fake news media is not my enemy. It is the enemy of the American people. It's true, 100%. Not the media. I'm glad you're finally quoting it correctly. I think some of the coverage of you, sir, and I've said it on the record, is biased. But I don't think that they're... Most of it is biased. Most of it is I don't know, but but the idea that you call us the enemy of the people... I'm not calling you that. I'm talking about... We're all together. You don't understand it. We're all together. No, no, no. I'm not calling you... It doesn't matter what you call. When you call calling, CNN and the New York Times, I am calling, and we, we're in solidarity, sir. I am sir. calling fake news. Fake reporting is what's tearing this country apart. Because people know, people like things that are happening, and they're not hearing about it. I think the president doubling down here is the right way to go. I don't know why he would back off of this. There is a lot of fake news out there. This this notion, this is the central the central problem is this idea that the mainstream media does not have an insane, obvious problem of left-wing bias. I I just, I'm not going to get past that anytime soon. That is the truth. It is reality. 
You know, the same way, that, and it's not because, oh, only liberals want to be journalists. No, they've created an echo chamber. They enforce it like a country club with arbitrary regulations and rules, and enough is enough. And it's all about, they talk about power and structures. The journalist power structure is controlled by libs, controlled by the left. But then Trump got into a little more on in that interview where he, he, he well, he, he said some things about uh, Admiral McRaven. Um, and Admiral McRaven was the commander of, um, what was it, uh, Joint Special Operations Command during the operation that killed Osama bin Laden. So now people are saying, and, and Trump said something like, uh, I, wish, I wish we'd gotten bin Laden sooner, which, true, everyone wishes we'd gotten bin Laden sooner, but it's, it was clearly meant to be a little bit of a like, you know, that guy's, no, you know, he's not perfect, nobody's perfect, let's calm down. And now there's a lot of pushback against Trump because they're saying Navy Admiral McRaven is, you know, he's decorated, he's a career military, you know, professional, a professional's professional within the special operations community and all that stuff. And and then the, the GOP, from its official Twitter account, shared earlier today that worth noting after recent comments, retired Admiral William McRaven was reportedly on Hillary Clinton's shortlist for vice president in 2016. He's been critical of President Trump, even dating back to the 2016 campaign. He's hardly a non-political figure. I mean, a couple of thoughts. I mean, first of all, nobody that's stepping in the political arena is beyond having their ideas criticized, period, full stop. OK, n- nobody. Now, that doesn't mean you should be dis- disrespectful to people, but everyone's ideas and, and assertions should be open to challenge and criticism. And, and that's a fundamental part of what makes this country this country. But when the left does, and when the Democrats do this thing of, oh, Trump is so disrespectful to the military, you'll notice that there's, there is a pattern here. The pattern is that people go after Trump, he goes back after them. And he doesn't consider, and he, and he tries to punch back twice as hard. He doesn't consider there to be off-limits areas the way that other people would. Now, you can tactically disagree with that. I think a lot of you probably do, a lot of you probably don't. Depends on the specifics of the case at hand. But, you know, whether it's McRaven or McChrystal, I mean, there are a number of these guys who are very highly regarded former military, uh, and they have been critical of Trump in ways. Remember, McChrystal was fired for being critical of of Obama, actually. Uh, It wasn't even really him. It was his staff in a Rolling Stone article. They were quoted as being critical of Obama. What they said about Obama, if I recall, was mostly true. He had no idea what the heck he was talking about, knew nothing about the military, knew nothing about the intelligence community. All of that was true, but Obama didn't like that. Uh, but you look at some of these figures and you say to yourself, okay, I mean, they're stepping out and they want to battle with Trump. And when you battle with Trump, you're, you're dealing with the man himself. Uh, and, and I, McRaven's statement, by the way, that the biggest threat to our democracy is Trump saying the enemy of the American people is perhaps the greatest threat to democracy in my lifetime. That was what McRaven wrote. I mean, that just goes back to this. Another thing about, you know, the threat to democracy from Trump, this is a delusion. I don't care what somebody did before they're saying this. They're wrong in saying this. Trump is not a threat to democracy. It is hyperbolic garbage. There's no evidence for it. The only evidence is they don't like his comments, but comments are actually a part of democracy. Oh, wow. One of the areas where I think there's the greatest disconnect between the media and reality when it comes to this administration is in the comparison of Trump and Obama. This 
brings in, of course, the conversation about Crenshaw, Congressman Crenshaw, where he's just saying, what do you mean? What does it mean to say that he's undermining the press or undermining the First Amendment? What does that mean? Who does he sound like there, by the way? What do they mean by that? You know, it sounds like somebody, somebody we all know. Uh, but he, when you when you look at what the Obama administration did over the course of its eight years in office, when it comes to the press, Obama was the worst president on press freedom probably since FDR, maybe since Woodrow Wilson. Uh, and you know that that's going back quite a long ways. Uh, Obama took this approach that he was going to make examples of people who leaked information. And you'll note that there were very few leaks that were controversial or or rather uh, contradictory to the administration narrative. There were leaks, to be sure, WikiLeaks and other things. But there weren't things that were specifically anti-Obama that tended to get leaked. Now, that's in part because the press corps was in love with Obama but it's also, I think, there was a bit of a, a chill wind blowing through journalist corridors because Obama went after more people. And this is a stunning statistic. Obama went after more people with the Espionage Act involved in either journalism or, uh, or whistleblowing than, and, and leakers. And there were some straight up leakers in there, too. But then every president before him combined. Every president before him combined. That is a pretty stunning record of aggressiveness when it comes to, well, one, the First Amendment in general, but two, press freedom. And today was an interesting day for me because given this conversation about, you know, Acosta, his big whiny baby and the whole thing, uh, and, and I just, I try to explain to the journalists who will listen to me, you don't understand, guys, we don't care what you think about Trump in part because we saw what you did with Obama. We saw how you abdicated any real responsibility to be a check on his power. In fact, you were cheerleaders for his shredding of the Constitution. You were advocates for his aggressive, quasi-authoritarian, unconstitutional acts. And, and apologists for it all at the same time. Cheerleaders and apologists when necessary. When it was too egregious to cover up from public view, then they'd say, well, you know, I mean, it really, well, it wasn't that bad. You know, better than Bush or whatever. Don't criticize him. It's racist. That's the kind of stuff that the mainstream media would say of Obama. Uh, but I, I got to sit down today with uh, James Risen, who was involved in a very contentious, long-running uh, investigation. He was named a lot in this investigation over a leak, a leak of classified information to him uh, over a book and that, that he wrote. And the Obama administration relentlessly didn't just pursue the leaker, who I think got 20 years in prison, uh, but the Obama administration pursued him as a journalist. And so I sat down today with a journalist who's here to tell me that Acosta getting his pass taken away for a couple of days and just meaning that, remember, he doesn't have no access to the White House. It just means he has to check in. It just means that he has a privilege that has been taken away, a privilege, a you could say a courtesy had been temporarily removed from Acosta. Oh, that, that's a threat to the First Amendment. Meanwhile, when I asked James Risen, who's a well-known author, written for the New York Times, all these other places, you know, he's considered a journalist, journalist guy. I asked him, well, who's worse? The Obama administration that wanted to throw you in prison for being a journalist or Trump. Here's what he, here's what he says. Play clip one. 
You, you mentioned autocrats. Autocrats take actions, right? It's not just the question of their rhetoric. They actually do things that are autocratic. Comparing this presidency to the previous presidency when it comes to taking actions against the press, how do they line up? Obama versus Trump. Well, Obama tried to put me in jail for seven years, so I have uh, no great love for press for the and, press and, freedom and not record. just you, by the way. Other journalists as well mentioned well, as possible. Well, I was possible. the one, I was you the know, one that they not, not tried to mitigate. for seven years to put me in jail. So a lot of conservatives uh, try to point to me as an example of uh, Obama on press freedom. And I, I fully agree with uh, the view that he had a terrible record on press freedom. The difference with Trump is that he is demagoguing the issue in a way that we haven't seen in modern American history. He is going to the public constantly to try to discredit the press. What sounds worse to you? That Trump criticizes the press? Or that Obama wanted to have members of the press, not the leaker, the member of the press? And in the case of James Rosen, remember, we've got Risen and Rosen. Right. Uh, Rosen over at Fox News, he was listed as an undoubted co-conspirator in a leak case. So it wasn't that's what I mentioned. I don't even know if Risen knows that. I mean, he, he sort of dismissed that. But that's an important point. It wasn't just him. There were others that threatened to throw them in prison. Erdogan style, baby, throw them in prison because they're writing stuff that he says you're not allowed to write. And when confronted with that fact pattern, here you have a well-known, long-established journo who is saying, oh, the mean words that Trump uses about journalists are worse than Obama, who was threatening and trying to throw journalists in federal prison for years. Just to make sure that I wasn't, you know, over uh, overanalyzing, overestimating, or anything like that, what he said, I made sure I said, all right, Mr. Risen. I didn't say it like that. Well, here, here's how I said it. On Hill TV this morning, play two. On the ability of the American press to do its job and to hold him accountable. So I just, I just have to ask. So you think you are more concerned about this president than you were the previous president, even though the previous president wanted to throw you as a journalist in prison for doing your job. I I I didn't think I would ever get to the point where I would say that, but I do believe that now. I think um, I wrote a, a. That's crazy, right? I mean, I think we can all agree that's just that's just you've been brainwashed. Somebody wanted to throw let's line this up. Let's pretend let's take the whole journalism part out of this for a second, folks. Someone is saying mean stuff about you publicly versus someone who's incredibly powerful. The most powerful person in the world is trying to take away your freedom, your reputation and your dignity and shove you in a cell like an animal. Who is a bigger who is a bigger concern? I, you know, you, you don't even have to answer. We all know. But Ryzen knows what the sheet of music is that he has to read from here. Ryzen knows. Oh, no, no, no. We have to pretend that Trump is worse. That's what the journos want right now. Trump is worse. I, I, I actually felt bad for the guy because I, I know that he can't really believe that. But I also know that if he wants to be in good standing with his journalist peers and colleagues, he can't just speak the truth on this, which is Obama was worse. Obama was worse on press freedom. There's no question. There's there's no there's no comparison he made between the two of them at this point in in Trump's presidency. Obama was worse, more aggressive. It's because Obama had a very 
progressive view of presidential power when it comes to the First Amendment. And that progressive view is, if you're getting in the way of my power, I'm trying to do all these great things, I will crush you. It's kind of a scary way to view things, isn't it? Here's a crazy idea for the uh, leftist journalist. Uh, what if the threat to the First Amendment isn't Trump criticizing them? What if the threat to the First Amendment is them not understanding that Trump is allowed to criticize them? That the president does not have to sit there and just be abused by a hostile press corps endlessly? You know, this this is a question that I think any any member of the press corps, if they were being serious, if they were being, if they had even an ounce of self-reflection, this is where they would go, but they don't go there. They don't want to have that conversation. They don't want to think that maybe there's something that they are doing that is part of the problem here, or perhaps causing even a majority of the discord between this White House and the, uh, the press corps as it is. By the way, you know, they're not, um, they're not doing this year a uh, comedian at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And I have to say, I, I think that that's a, a good thing. And uh, hat tip, uh, hat tip to, uh, oh gosh, who was it? It was over at, um, uh, I can't remember, somebody over at, one of, the, one of the guys I like over at Fox News said they didn't have a comedian last year either uh, with, what's her name, Michelle, whatever. She was horrible. I'm here to make jokes about... Daniel Trump. I mean, it's just horrible. Mike, do you know what I'm talking about? This woman who was at the... It's it's amazing how many unfunny, deeply unfunny female comedians there are out there and, and how they're just able to to just continue being being awful. Yeah, man. I totally awful. hear you. You know what I'm What's her name? Michelle something or other, right? Yeah, I know you're uh, talking about it. I'm throwing a blank on her last name. She's, she's not... I'd never heard of her until... The correspondence dinner. I never heard of her. I was like, who is this person? Uh, she's just, she's just yeah. terrible. I'm looking her up her name right now. Is, Give me one sec. I know you're... Uh, uh, Michelle Wolf, right? I think really made Michelle fun Wolf? of... Uh, yeah, Michelle Wolf. That's right. She was yeah. the one who really went after Sarah Huckabee Sanders, basically made like a lesbian joke about her. And I mean, it was really nasty, if memory serves, uh, which it, my memory tends to serve. So uh, that, that you know, she was terrible. But the, the correspondence dinner, you know, I went, Mike, early on in my career. I'll ne- I said then I'll never go back. It's the worst. <laughs> It's the worst. First of all, you get all this chin wagging from the CNN clowns, yeah, and they're they're there and they're like, oh, where's it? It just, it's just awful. You know, it's it's like the kids from the high school that were really into drama and theater right. now think that they're like the cool kids who run everything, <laughs> at least at this thing. And no, they're actually still not the cool kids. Right. I don't care how famous they are, how much money they're getting paid. They're they still a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them suck. Yeah, so, it's not surprising. It seems very clickly. Clicky. Yeah, it's very clicky, but all, but also, man, the whole thing, it's just it, the correspondence dinner, it takes forever. The food is bad. You're just sitting there at a table. You're stuck with these people. The speech, it's speech after speech and blah, blah, blah. The whole, the whole thing is, is just nonsense. It really is. It's garbage. Yeah. So we'll see. By the way, did you watch, I'm going to talk about it later. Did you watch the William Wallace, uh, I'm sorry, the Robert the Bruce, rather, Braveheart sequel over the weekend? I did not, but it's definitely on my I'll, list there. I had a, I had a crazy All right, we, we, need, we need a producer, Mike. I'm giving my review later. We need a producer, yeah. Mike, update later in the week with yeah, that. So. That is on my list for this long weekend coming up. I had a uh, wedding last weekend. and uh, Yeah, Narco Season 3, dude. Narco oh. Season 3 is going to be. I almost watched it last oh, night. Oh, no, Season 4. Tired. Season 4. Yeah. Mexico Season. Yeah. Yep. It's going to be it's gonna be the hotness. All right, team, we got a quick break. We'll be right back. The president not only has signed a presidential declaration, 
uh, giving California substantial funding, but he uh, said and pledged very specifically to to continue to help us. So I think we're on a good path, uh, but it's still going to be difficult because the only way to assure the long-term uh, forest health is not just uh, you know cutting trees. It's going to require mm-hmm. reducing carbon emissions. Oh man. First of all, this fire, this is terrible. I mean, you see the you see the footage, you see the photos of this, and you've got at least 77 people killed in these these two fires uh, that have been burning out of just just out of control. I think they're now mostly or or entirely contained depending on the fire. Uh, but this is the dead, deadliest wildfire in California state history. Surpassing the previous uh, the previous death toll set in 1933, so clearly things are bad. Um, but as with anything in America, everything in American politics. Oh my gosh! By the way, the, the fire has burned before I get into the political 151,000 acres, and producer Mike tells me a thousand people are still missing. It is 66 percent contained. 5,300 workers are battling the flames. I mean, this is a this is like a war against a fire. Uh, that's going on here, and it is just, and this is horrific. Uh, you see the footage. I mean, entire you know areas of towns and houses all burnt out. But yeah, I don't want to make this about politics, but they they automatically do. And the the idea that that you've got the governor Brown here saying we have to reduce our carbon emissions, how is that a strategy for dealing with forest fires in California? Does he really does he think that the the Chinese, the Indians, that the rest of the world is going to all of a sudden decarbonize because of fires in in California? I mean, I really mean that. And and if the situation in the forest there is so flammable right now, well, how how long will it take? It, let let's say that we, that they did exactly what the governor and I, look, I know he has to say it because you've got a lot of environmental wackos in California and the you know, the green extremes running around. But l- let's just say for a moment, for the, for the case of, or for the purposes of argument, that the preferred California policy on, on CO2 was adopted by, you know, all of America, all of America. Does anyone think that that would have an effect, uh, a, a real effect on the CO2 in the air globally in a way that would stop an individual fire or two, which is really what we're talking about here, a handful of fires that have been catastrophic in California. This is just not smart. This this analysis of the problem, it's it's culture posing, you know, politics and, and cultural uh, brainwashing. Because remember, climate change is really about how good of a person you are, right? You, you, don't, you tell people that you believe in climate change so they know that you're a good person, you're the right kind of person. It's really not about science and that's that's something that i i will never let slip from this conversation uh climate change is about the if you're the smart good person you believe in climate change that's how the left has set this up but even if they got there even if the entire country did exactly what they want anyone really think that that's going to stop a forest fire anytime soon what that the the co2 in the air is going to drop so precipitously that in a year we won't have another forest fire no but forest management and opening it up so that there can be more uh, more cutting of forests and more use of, that's right, natural resources, that could have an effect within months, not even necessarily years, within months. 
So, you know, on the one side of this, you have people that are taking the position, are taking a position that, you know, we need urgent action that'll maybe have an effect on the wildfires in California in 50 years. And the other side, we're saying, how about action now? And the ones that are saying action now are mocked. And the ones that are saying action that might bear fruit in 50 years are the anti-science ones. It's, it's, it's troubling, but this is just, unfortunately, it's not going to go away anytime soon. Uh, people have been, this is one of the areas where you have, it's the hardest to have a normal conversation with somebody. You know, they really, when I try to talk to liberals about this issue, they act like I'm on the payroll of some oil company. And I always look at them like, that's a crazy thing to think. And also, I'd love to be on the payroll of some oil company. That sounds great. Uh, unfortunately, it's not the case. I'm just not crazy on this issue. And that's, I think, that's where the conversation breaks down. But anyway, we'll have uh, more updates for you on this as it goes along. Stay with us, team. Global Verification Network, the only dual-certified, veteran-owned background investigation and vetting company. Whether you're a huge business or a small business, no matter where you are, if you're in a city, rural, coast-to-coast, you're going to be bringing people on. You need to make sure that they are who they say they are, that they're... Uh, T's are crossed, that their I's are dotted with all their background paperwork, and you need somebody that you can trust to give you real answers. That's Global Verification Network, okay? They all do their work here in the States. They don't outsource this. A lot of background investigation places aren't American-made, aren't American-operated. They do this stuff overseas. They outsource this stuff. You don't want that. Also, by the way, they don't have control of the servers they're using, which are also overseas. It's just not as secure. You want to go with an all-American, veteran-owned company for your background checks and vetting. Global Verification Network. Call 877-695-1179 or go to MyGVN. That's M-Y-G-V-N dot com. We've got winners in Florida and Georgia, folks. The good news is that they are all GOP, baby, all across the board. Booyah! That's right. We've got uh, Kemp winning in Georgia, Scott and DeSantis winning in Florida. It's official. In the case of Scott, I think he had to win three times in terms of three different counts uh, had to happen before they finally said, okay, all right, fine, he wins, I guess. Uh, In the governor's race, Ron DeSantis beat Andrew Gillum by 32,463 votes. In the Senate race in Florida, Rick Scott beat Bill Nelson by 10,033 votes, very, very tight. And that's with all outstanding ballots and all overseas stuff. Um, and, and then you have the whole Stacey Abrams situation, uh, who really typified, I think, the, the sore loser phenomenon on the left. Here you go, Stacey Abrams of Georgia, with a non-concession concession speech. I acknowledge that former Secretary of State Brian Kemp will be certified as the victor in the 2018 gubernatorial election. But to watch an elected official who claims to represent the people in this state baldly pin his hopes for election on the suppression of the people's democratic right to vote has been truly appalling. So let's be clear, this is not a speech of concession. Because concession means to acknowledge an action is right true or proper. As a woman of conscience and faith, I cannot concede that. So I guess she's saying she lost, but she doesn't accept that she lost, which sounds to me like being a sore loser. She's conceding, but it's not a concession. 
Uh, this is how the left does things. As you know, they change the definitions of words. They misuse words. They just avoid the important principles that are at work in any conversation and just hope that the propaganda will win the day. But this is really just pathetic stuff. I guess she figures she has a long career ahead of her running for offices that she probably won't win and going on MSNBC to complain about the whole system being tilted against women and minorities, which is what they do on MSNBC pretty much every night anyway. Um, but she went even beyond this. She went on Jake Tapper's show. And I just want to note, for those of you who think, oh, isn't Tapper, doesn't he try to be fair? Some of you have said that to me. And I say, well, I try to be fair. And no, Tapper does not really try to be fair. Listen to what she gets away with saying on his show without the, the pushback that I would expect any person that was being fair-minded to give, which is, you're speaking a bunch of crazy talk, lady. Here it is. But do you think that there was deliberate interference in the election? Yes. And I believe it began eight years ago with the systematic disenfranchisement of more than a million voters. It continued with the underfunding and disinvestment in polling places, in training, and in the management of the county delivery of services. And I think it had its pinnacle in this race. But a few months before, in May of 2018, a Republican primary had to be called for a do-over because a number of voters did not receive accurate ballots. We know that there has been a dramatic discrepancy in the way absentee ballots are both allocated and counted across the 159 counties. And so, yes, there was a deliberate and intentional disinvestment and, I think, destruction of the administration of elections in the state of Georgia. Well, intentional destruction of the administration of elections in the state of Georgia. Wow, that is quite a claim. What evidence does she offer to support it? Does she even speak to any one individual's conscious effort or any group's effort to do these things? I mean, that's, that's a, a wild claim she's making there. I mean, that's a very broad but very powerful claim, of course, to say that essentially the election that just happened is illegitimate. You know, I thought that delegitimizing elections was dangerous to our democracy. And I thought that whenever anybody did anything like that, we would have to get a, or they should get a lecture from the media wagging a finger at them saying, oh, no, you don't. You don't do that to our democracy. That's not allowed. You're undermining our institutions. Is it only a problem when the make-believe Russians undermine the institutions? What, what about when somebody openly and actively decides that an election is illegitimate just because she lost or he lost. That would seem to have a much more profound undermining effect, wouldn't it? But no, he didn't get, I mean, look, Tapper asked the question a couple more times, but di didn't push her and didn't, certainly didn't say, well, you're offering, an, you're offering an accusation with no supporting evidence. And I saw this really interesting uh, thread from this guy, AG Conservative on Twitter. I don't know who he is, but he writes some interesting stuff. And he, he responded to somebody, Ari Berman, who is a, an author of, about elections and writes on elections, who's a lib, obviously, who says that 1.5 million people were purged by Brian Kemp. Here's AG Conservative taking the lies of the left on this issue to task. He writes, if no one else is going to respond to this, I guess I'll have to. The list of purges and registrations on hold and all the rest of it that the Democrats are sharing gives readers who don't know the facts a false impression and thus undermine a legitimate election. 
Um, he writes, the 1.5 million purged in Georgia is the total number of voters that have been removed from the rolls since 2012. Many have been removed because they moved or committed felonies or died, etc. The overwhelming majority of the rest were removed because of Georgia's use it or lose it law. This law was passed in 1997 by a Democratic legislature and a Democratic governor in Georgia. Similar laws have been upheld by the Supreme Court. It requires the rolls to be updated by removing voters that have not voted for some time and do not respond to contact from the state. It's worth noting the reason there was a large spike in 2017 was that the legally required maintenance was not done in 2015. Three state officials oversee this effort to prevent major errors. None of them are Brian Kemp. AG Conservative continues here with, quote, 53,000 registrations on hold, that claim. These registrations were labeled pending, but that occurred because there was some discrepancy between their registration and their files. All of these voters could still vote with normal ballots as long as they provided ID at the polling place. As for the 4.5 hour long lines, yes, there were four and a half hours. Yes, there were long lines at some polling locations. That happens on Election Day. Georgia does have early voting options. Local officials manage those places. Has little to do with Jack, or with, uh, rather with Secretary of State Kemp, not Jack Kemp. Uh, and then 214 polling places closed. This is the total number of polling places closed since 2012 in the state. Many of those were consolidated to save money. Those decisions were made by local county officials to save money and have zero to do with Kemp. So, and that's a very important thread, and I've checked that information, and I believe it is all to be accurate. Very important thread from this guy, AG Conservative, on Twitter, where he's just saying, because what Stacey Abrams essentially did is say, well, the system in Georgia is rigged and, and, and racist, right? That's, that's what this is all about. And the Republicans are suppressing the vote. Meanwhile, they keep accusing us of suppressing the vote, and, they have rec- and, and then they will cheer about their record turnout. Well, well which is it? We, are we really suppressing the vote or are we helping with your vote turnout efforts because vote turnout keeps getting higher and higher for Democrats, right? So well, what exactly is going on? But more to the point here, Abrams tells this whole tale of how, you know, the left is just getting, you know, the, the short end of the stick here. But in reality, it's just the way the elections are being run in Georgia. That's what's really happening here. That's what's really underway. And I just wish we could operate in the realm of facts instead of these sweeping, nasty accusations from the sore loser left, which is what they are. The Khashoggi saga continues on. The media loves to talk about the president's response to it. They don't spend as much time worried about what it would mean with our Saudi allies and the relationship. They're imperfect allies, but allies nonetheless. I want to bring in somebody who has very interesting perspective on this one. We've got Jim Hansen joining us now. You've probably seen him on Fox News many times. He is the president of the Security Studies Group and a former Army Special Forces soldier. Jim, great to have you on. Always a pleasure, Buck. Uh, so, you know, what, what's your take about where we are right now with Khashoggi? We got, they, they sanctioned some people involved. The Saudis, I know, made some arrests, which no one's particularly, you know, caring all that much about with the arrest. But, I mean, how, how do you think the administration's handling it? Where do you think this is going? There's supposed to be this report coming out this week. Yeah, and there was an attempt on Friday by the Washington Post to go ahead and, and pre-spin the narrative on this report as if it concluded that the CIA had some kind of evidence 
that Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of, of Saudi Arabia, ordered this killing. And they, they made a big splash. You know, all the other media outlets picked it up, and there was this kind of feeding frenzy on Friday. And then we started pointing out that what the leaks, you know, that they had, they don't have the report, but they had leaks. And even the leaks they had, the most, you know, damning ones, didn't have any evidence at all. It said that the CIA had high confidence that this couldn't have happened without his approval. Well, there's a huge gap between couldn't have happened without his approval and we have proof he did it. And they were acting as if it was the latter when all they had was the former. And that's, that's no way to make decisions. And so they were trying to pressure the president you know, into having to act as if there was proof. And, and there isn't. And so Trump actually called them out on that over the weekend when he talked with uh, Chris Wallace on Fox News Sunday. And he said, look, there, there's no proof of this. There's nothing that says he ordered it. So for now, we're going to act as if that's the facts on the ground and make our decisions based on that. And that's the right answer. Stepping back for a second, what do you think about the status of the U.S.-Saudi relationship overall right now? And I mean, how how should Trump? Because, look, you know, the journalists are all they're acting like this is about journalist solidarity and all this stuff. All I hear from most of them is an immediate pivot after they update the news story to oh, Trump hasn't done enough, Trump is weak, Trump likes dictators. It's just the talking points right away. But looking more seriously and in a sober fashion at the U.S.-Saudi relationship, what do you think about it right now? What should we be doing? Well, when Trump came to office, his first overseas trip was to Riyadh. And when he was there, he made a a plea to all of the Muslim leaders. He said, look, I don't want to go to war with Islam. I'm not that guy. They're trying to portray me as that guy. What I want is to stop the Islamists to stop the ones who are killing people, to stop the ones who are trying to, you know, control the world. Um, You guys who are against them as well, which in this case includes Mohammed bin Salman and the Saudis, we want to work with you to fight against them, and especially you guys in the Gulf and in the Middle East, we want to work with you to stop the real threat, which is Iran. And so he built kind of a partnership and, and made a fairly strong investment in the Saudis as an ally, And they have been very helpful, more so than they have been uh, for a considerable amount of time. You know, and they're helping us against Iran. They're helping in the Israel-Palestine peace process against Hamas and some of the other groups that normally uh, they had caused us trouble with historically. So I think the the relationship is strong in that uh, aspect. But there's a lot of attacks from people who don't like the Saudis, Qatar, Turkey, and the media. And those guys are trying to sour that relationship. And I don't think that's helpful. I wanted to ask you also, you know, this just came up today and I I was over at the Hill and we're having some conversations with various journalists about this. I I always think it's interesting how uh, a refrain you often hear is how Trump and this is from left wing journalists, which is 90 percent of journalists, but how, how Trump is not respectful of military families. Trump doesn't visit the troops overseas. Trump just this long list. You know, Trump is critical of McRaven or he's critical of, you know, McCain. They go through this whole list of things. And then I always want to around and just say, all right, just not even getting into the specifics of all those incidents. Why is it that at least every and this is anecdotal, I know, but uh, I'd say I shouldn't say every, but a vast majority of the war fighters that I've come across and that I know are very happy with President Trump. So, I mean, how do you square that, Jim? You know, I think if you look at the people who he's gotten into beefs with, they're people who got into beefs with him. McCain was giving him no end of crap, you know? And so Trump counterattacked. You know, the same thing. McRaven started saying things. Trump attacked him back. 
So I think people recognize, you know, the military folks recognize that Trump's instincts are good. He believes in a strong America and that a strong America brings more peace and causes less wars. So they understand that his basic instincts are good. They understand that he loves the troops at, at the, you know, do I respect them? Do I respect the sacrifice, the service and all of that? Yes. And is he likely to have policies that keep them from having to deploy more often? And the answer to that for most of them is yes. So I think there's a there's a simpatico element between them. And then when he gets in beats with with high level people, um, got to be honest, I like it. And so do a lot of other military people, because he calls out partisans for what they are. And I think that's refreshing and, and not something we've seen from a lot of presidents. You know, this is see, I can only speak from the uh, from the you know intel analyst nerd perspective. But whenever whenever people say, oh, how how could he call out, you know, James Clapper, how how dare he say something? I'm like, first of all, you know, I work the CIA, the left, like, you know, has dartboards with my face on it all over the place. So it's just this notion that you're beyond reproach if you're an, an intelligence person is, is new to me. That, that's entirely new to me. But he, but even beyond that, some of these people are partisans. I mean, again, speaking from the intel community side of it specifically, you know, uh, Clapper, Mike Hayden, I think, has embarrassed himself in the last 18 and really embarrassed himself and quite honestly embarrassed me and a lot of other people who work for him. I don't care what he did at the NSA and the CIA. Yeah. And I think there, there's, a, again, a recognition that when these people who claim and claimed when they were working to not be partisan, but you look at what they did and you look at some of the things that are coming out about the politicization, politicization of, of intelligence you know, under the Obama administration, it was horrendous how they used the tools of national security for partisan political purposes. And these guys were doing it. Brennan, Hayden, Clapper, all of them were implicated in this. And now all of a sudden that they're out, they're ripping the masks off and saying, Roar! of course we were, because Trump's evil and we must stop him. And I'm like, hold on, fellas. If you're willing to say that now, what were you doing before? You know, were you just hiding it? Well, this is, this is... Uh... You know, Jen, this is something that I've I've been trying to raise in the show for a while, which is I'm actually um, in favor of people understanding that the State Department basically has the politics of the faculty lounge at Wellesley College. Like, I, I want people to understand that at least in the analyst cadre at the CIA, DIA and other places, you probably have a two or three to one left wing bias in place. I'm not saying that that makes those places you know, irrelevant or less trustworthy or whatever. I'm just saying people should should know this and that there are very political actors who tend to run these places as well. And then when you get back to things like the Khashoggi case, you wonder when a when a finding comes out, when a conclusion comes out, is this tainted by political bias? And the, the answer is, of course, it is. There are people who are very pro cutter. There are people who are very pro Iran in those places, and they, they were very empowered during the Obama administration, and now they're being told by the political leaders that Trump's put in place that the policies have changed, and they're not happy about that, so they're doing what they can. And I think you're, you're right. We need to look at the fact that those are not purely honest brokers who have no you know, axe to grind. They're grinding them at full speed, and we need to take that into account when they put their opinions in the public eye. Yeah, uh, look, I, I absolutely agree. Uh, well, Jim, we'll, we'll continue to follow this Khashoggi thing. Love, love to have you back. Jim Hansen, everybody, President, Security Studies Group, former U.S. Army Special Forces. Check him out on Fox. Follow him on Twitter, Uncle underscore Jimbo. Jim, great to have you, man. Thanks for making the time. Good being with you, Buck.
Team hitting a quick break. We'll be back in just a few moments. What is it like to confront the radical left on their home turf, my friends? Uh, I've done it before with Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter and some of the other extreme groups out there. What's Antifa like up close and personal? Well, our next guest was out there in Portland this past weekend when Antifa got completely insane. Andy No joins us now. He is an editor at Colette, and he was right there in the middle of an Antifa melee, and he's going to tell us a bit about it. Andy, thank you so much for joining. My pleasure to be with you. So, Andy, you are out in Portland. You have a him to rally for raising awareness of men who are falsely accused of sexual assault. That brings out the Portland Antifa uh, group. And Portland Antifa speaks to you. We've got some of the audio. I know you've got some very compelling video you took from this protest and counter-protest. Here's the kind of stuff that they said to Andy, folks. Play clip eight. You're a piece of shit. Nobody oh, likes you. Nazi. Nobody likes you. The city hates you. You're trash. Get the f- out of here. Do you have any friends? Look at you. Look at you. Look this at is the Portland Police Bureau. The sidewalks on was Madison between 4th Avenue and 2nd Avenue are closed. He talks about people in this city standing up for something. He's an Islamophobe. He talks about Occupy ICE. He supports the detention of non-criminal immigrants. Get the out of here. Nobody in this city likes you. You have no friends. Nothing to say. Look at him. Nothing to say. He knows how stupid he is. The go to your here. rape cage. Yeah, go to your rape cage. Go into your rape. What a piece of. Thank God you got all these cops around, huh? He seems well adjusted and nice, Andy. What the heck is going on there? Yes. Yeah, so on Saturday there was a rally, as you said, a him to rally organized by a local conservative young woman to bring attention to men who have been falsely accused of sexual misconduct and sex crimes. Now, in Portland, I have to set the context for how we got to this point in Portland becoming like an epicenter for Antifa and far-left violence and, and clashes on the street. Lots of video clips from here have gone viral. So Portland is a progressive monoculture and because there's no counterpoise of any other ideas it's really easy for leftist views to become radicalized in sort of an echo chamber that just gets louder and louder and i think that's the debate the context for how antifa has been able to operate kind of sometimes with impunity as well so um they're they start They've been around, it's an organization that's been around a long time, but they started gaining a lot of momentum in the city after the election of Donald Trump in 2016. In November, we saw some violent rioting in some business districts in downtown. We had a million dollars in damage. They targeted um, small businesses, people that had nothing to do with the election, but they took out their rage on the citizens. And ever since then, um, frequently we would see these brawls that would happen on the streets whenever there's a conservative event, a pro-Donald Trump event. They would come out uh, in, in mobilizing a very large group to 
confront these people as if it's a cosmic battle, really. That's how they view it. They view that we are in an era of, of fascism and people need to fight to, to the death, even. So... Well, Andy, yeah, I mean, it's kind of, the, the stuff that you captured on video is pretty compelling. I mean, here's, folks, here's some of what it sounded like to be in Portland, a otherwise seemingly normal American city, over this weekend. Play nine. Don't touch me. I'm not touching you. Don't look at me. How about you get the out? This guy is not friendly to the opposition. I don't need get your to be Andy. here. Don't touch me. I won't be intimidated by you. I don't feel safe you. with you here, so get the out. I don't out. care what you feel. Obviously, you don't. You've been oppressed by white men throughout history. You should be ashamed of yourself. Why should I be ashamed of myself? Because you're an Asian given into white supremacy, mother. Andy, did did any of these protesters try to even begin any kind of a dialogue or conversation with you, or they just want to make racial comments, yell at you, curse at you, and tell you you have no friends? Yeah, so um, when I'm hearing this audio isolated, it's so it really kind of pierces my heart. Like to be confronted like that on Saturday, as I haven't had anybody in my life treat me like that to my face before. Like, these are types of things that I would find, like, on Twitter or on Facebook, but to my face, it felt kind of surreal. It just, it was weird to see that people could respond to another human like that. Like, they were looking at me in my eyes and saying that I, I was trying to look at them, but they were masked, they were wearing sunglasses. So they hate me because I'm one of the few journalists locally here who have been writing critically about them and trying to shine a light on things that they do because I, I feel like the, the local media, which is primarily progressive or left of center, they've been derelict in their duty to be fair on the coverage of Antifa because they sort of take the group at face value in terms of the name anti-fascism. Do they ever explain why they cover their faces, or is it just the obvious, which is that it makes it harder for them to be arrested when they attack people or destroy stuff? Um, unfortunately, I think it's the second reason. It's a tactic called black block, which is not exclusive to them, but they are become. It's, this has become sort of like their, their uniform, you could say. And black block is where they dress from head to toe in black, and they cover their faces and eyes, and they make it so that when some of them in, are involved in criminal activity, they can melt easily back into a crowd, and it will be very difficult for police to identify them either on the spot or w- with uh, photos and video footage later. Are they are they ideologically, do they identify with anarchists or just with anti-fascists? It's a far-left movement that includes people who are communists, socialists, and anarchists. So it's this coalition working together. They sort of have their their goals are utopian in many ways. I would say dystopian. They believe they believe in violent revolution. They're vehemently against capitalism. They're against this country itself. So they have a lot of positions that they advocate for, completely ideological. And um, when they were confronting me on Saturday in this really vicious way, I was trying to 
I was trying really hard to see the humanity in them because I know I could tell that a lot of these people are young and maybe they've just been fed a cer- certain ideas and it's they have all this passion. I was trying to tell them that the caricature they have of who I am is not accurate, but I, I failed. Anything I would say would just be thrown back in my face with more swearing and a lot of really nasty stuff with that was racially tinged as well and I would say there was a little bit of homophobia, and I, I, my, 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 what I would like to say to the city and to the mayor is that the city needs to consider an ordinance that will prohibit masks at political rallies. There's no excuse for people to be covering their faces at these political gatherings. It's only for bad doing, and knowing that. I wonder why the city is not debating that. Instead, the city and city council was debating an ordinance, which, I mean, a proposal which failed about setting up a free speech zone, essentially. Similar One thing that came up in one of your videos, by the way, Andy, was Occupy ICE. I talked about it once briefly on this show, but I just, I know you were there and you were covering it firsthand as a journalist in the field. What was Occupy ICE, or Immigration and Customs Enforcement in Portland? Yeah, so in back in the summer, the local Immigrations and Customs Office was under siege for 38 days, five weeks. This large group of, it was a coalition of all these farmers groups, so it included Antifa, included this new group called Occupy ICE, it had um, Democratic Socialists, and then just some other leftist groups that are based locally. They descended on this office as a siege to surrounded, surrounded all the exits. So the staff were actually trapped inside. And the mayor, his response, he sent out tweets saying that if if these officers are looking for a bailout in terms of help from Portland police, they're not going to get it. So I saw, these, as I did my reporting, I saw the correspondence of the, these officers inside calling local police, asking for help, they need help getting out, and they were rebuffed. So they were trapped in there for many hours. They had to wait for federal police officers to come to escort them out. And then the office was closed for over a week. And then once it was open, um, the police finally cleared the protesters out. But then they just moved to an adjacent area that was on the city property where they remained for several more weeks. It became a, um, a safety hazard. Ultimately, it was why it was shut down. There were... The human waste was being left out in the open. Um, there were used needles found by the biohazard crew that was cleaning it up. I, my heart stopped for the people who lived in this really nice small neighborhood of southwest Portland who were who had didn't have access to the streets, had to smell that, had to see that, were confronted by these people who went on patrols at night wearing masks. I mean, it was anarchy. And I wrote about it for the Wall Street Journal. That article was kind of how these Antifa people became familiar with me because it was widely disseminated. And now they view me as a threat and they say that I am a, yeah. a shill. Well, Andy, you're, you're, you're speaking to uh, you know hundreds of thousands of, of friends across the country right now, my friend. So please keep doing what you are doing and stay on this and uh, we'll continue to follow your work. Thank you so much for joining us. Colette, right? Q-U-I-L-E-T-T-E. Is that right? Q-L-T-T. Close. (laughs) 
Two L's, two T's. Close enough. All right. Uh, so that's yeah. where you see Andy's work. Also follow him on Twitter at Andy N-G-O. His last name is N-G-O, pronounced no. Andy, thanks so much, man. Great to have you on the show. Thank you. Whitaker decides in any way to limit or curtail the Mueller investigation. Are you okay with that? Look, he, it's going to be up to him. Uh, I think he's very well aware politically. I think he's astute politically. He's a very smart person, uh, a very respected person. He's going to do what's right. I really believe he's going to do what's right. Can with him being refusal? in there, I don't think so. I don't think I don't think that we I don't know that we have that power. I would love to see him recuse himself uh, because I think the things that he has said about uh, defunding the special probe uh, and the many things that he has. Uh, talks about with regard to his opinion, a negative opinion with regard to special counsel in the process. Uh, I don't think that he's the proper person to be in that position. Democrats excuse, Republicans recuse. That seems to be the theme here, my friends. That's what that is what we keep hearing. That is what we keep seeing. You know, oh, they've got he's got to recuse himself. He's got to recuse himself. Did Loretta Lynch recuse herself after the tarmac meeting with Bill Clinton while Hillary Clinton's on investigation? No. Did Eric Holder recuse himself from Operation Fast and Furious, discussing it, investigate? No. I mean, you get on the list. They don't recuse themselves. Only Republicans. See, this is the problem. Conservatives, the right, our, our principles are used against us by the left all the time. And they do so with glee because they know that they, they take a particular pleasure in smashing the fact that we actually have principles into our faces. And and that's why, I mean, this whole thing with Whitaker and how he should step aside, I don't want him to step aside because, one, I don't think he should. But, two, why should he step aside when Rosenstein, who is as conflicted as a person could reasonably be, I mean, it's just crazy. W- Rosenstein's conduct is part of the Mueller probe. And, Mueller, and and Rosenstein is overseeing the Mueller probe? How is that supposed to work? I mean, I, I just, this is bonkers. This just doesn't, this just does not make any sense. But as you know, this is really just about how the left wants their guy, which is what they think Rosenstein is. They want their guy in a position to make the call. They don't want our people to be in a position or our guy to be in a position. And I don't even think Whitaker is necessarily our guy. I just think that he's not an anti-Trump loon, but that's not enough. Democrats wanted anti-Trump loon. And so here you have uh, earlier today, Democratic senators who have have sued to block Whitaker's appointment as acting attorney general. So they filed a lawsuit in federal court saying it's unconstitutional. Meanwhile, I mean, I think that they should they should, uh, you know, they, they should file a lawsuit. Republicans file a lawsuit about how Mueller is unconstitutional. Mueller wasn't appointed with the advice and consent of the Senate, and he doesn't answer to anybody except for the attorney general in the chain of command. So why should there be advice and consent for these other positions and not for the special counsel? You know, this is the thing. Liberals, just like with with principles, liberals are all about the rules until the rules get in the way, and then the rules don't matter. Um, and, And by the way, they are just, they're trashing this guy, Whitaker, too, which really tells you that he's a good guy. Whenever you see certain people, when Chuck Schumer and Sidney Blumenthal, oh no, not Sidney Blumenthal, Richard, sorry, Richard Blumenthal, different Blumenthal, Richard Blumenthal uh, and these other uh, prominent Democrats, when they really 
go after somebody when they decide that it is, uh, you know, it is necessary for them, it is time for them to, uh, you know, trash somebody in this way, then, you know, that's when you have a situation where it's probably a good dude that they're going after. You know, that he should wear their disdain like a badge of honor, because as far as I'm concerned, the fact that they hate Whitaker so much is a huge endorsement of his character. I'm also hearing, by the way, I, I spoke to some some White House sources in the last couple of days, and they're saying this Mueller probe thing is winding down. They're not worried about it. There's no concern over it. Trump is in good spirits, which means that a lot of the stuff that's been reported on this and a lot of things you've been told just not true. Dare I say, you could make the assertion they are fake news. So, you know, I, I just would rather there be some, some truth and some honesty and some decency in the reporting over, over the Mueller probe more generally. But, but on this guy Whitaker, I mean, you know, they, they're just on a search and destroy mission. It's because the left is, you know, left is a disgrace. So that, that's a summary of what we're talking about here is the left is disgraceful. Um, and we'll get into more of that. Not just today, pretty much always. Stay with me, team. I've been talking about Snippy for a while, team. It's a new social media site. And if you've looked at Snippy.com and decided you were going to just go check something else out, look at Snippy.com again. Thousands of my listeners have joined Snippy, expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform. It's all about conversation and community. In fact, I just posted myself earlier today. Snippy not only encourages freedom of expression, but guarantees its users the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. There are articles right now about how Facebook is going to war. They're hiring all these PR firms. You know what's going on there, folks? People are figuring out that these social media platforms aren't what they've been pretending to be. If you want to get into the ground floor of a new social media platform that has no bias, no left lean, none of that stuff, Snippy's for you. Free to join, open to everyone. Join us at snippy.com and let your opinion matter. Now with an updated user interface and exciting new features, also available in the Apple App Store and available for Android, snippy.com, your new alternative social media. So what counts as racism in America today? It's a complicated question. As you know, the left loves to use accusations of racism as one of their favorite political tools to either shame people into thinking a certain way or voting a certain way to silence people they disagree with. They have used accusations of racism as a tool of politics for as long as I've been alive. And I think it's gotten worse and worse. Uh, they're doing it more aggressively now than, than ever before. There was a period where it felt like maybe there was a lull, I think, where during the Obama years we all got tired of it because every criticism of Obama the left said was racist. It didn't matter what was going on. If you said anything bad about Obama, it was racist. And we just, after a while, were overwhelmed by just how intellectually dishonest and how stupid that position was that they took. Uh, but he, here's a really good case study of racism in America, in, in my opinion. I mean, here's one where you really see how this plays out in the current, in the, it can play out at least in the current context. First of all, the, the New York Post put out a headline today, Chipotle may rehire manager who re refused serving black men. That's, that's the headline they run with. And let me tell you right off the bat, that is a shockingly dishonest headline. Because what happened here is not that Chipotle, the very well-known Mexican uh, restaurant chain, it's not that Chipotle had employees who wouldn't serve black men. Uh, the problem is that Chipotle 
had some employees who recognized a number of black teenagers in Minnesota, or maybe they were in their late teens, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, and knew that they had come in before, or at least they believed that they recognized them from before, and that they had not paid. Here, here is the audio of this, and I want to walk you through both how this was initially reported and what happened and how this has been reacted to since this audio has gone public. Play it. Well, we got to do Hey, because you never have money when you come in We here, never no, have we money. money. We never got money. Oh, we got no money. Bro, look, can we just get I our food? I might just run off of my food. Oh, yeah. Can well, we just get our food, folks? I just might run off of my food today. Bro, apparently we ain't got no money. We ain't got no money. I just want to stop it there for a moment. Does it sound like those are the young men in question here? Uh, who are making the allegations later of racism and uploads to the internet and got the young woman who's the manager that you hear in part of this video fired from her job, okay? She's working for a wage to support herself, maybe even to help out with her family. She's working hard. She's doing her job. Her and her fellow employees, by the way, are, from what you can tell in the video, Latino. They're certainly not white. And she was fired for racism by Chipotle. Does it sound like those young men who are laughing and giggling about how they don't have no money and they don't have any money and all this stuff, does it sound like they really feel like they're the victims of racism? Or does it sound like they realize that these employees who they're harassing are in on the bull crap they're trying to pull? You tell me. Here's more. Well, you know me. I pay here every freaking day. I pay for Let's not even worry about that. Can we get our food? I'm not paid until I guess. I mean, like... We're not going to make food unless you guys actually have money. All right, sir. What is that? What do you mean? Hold on, hold on. I thought you were going to get no reason. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I thought you were going to get no reason. Sir, sir, why did you not have to pay? Why did he not have to pay before he eats? Why did he not have to pay? Sir, can you explain to us why you didn't have to pay before you got your meal? Nah, bro, that is not Are you, no, bro, are you being serious right now? Are you serious? Are you being serious? No. See, it's very clear that the employees here at this Chipotle, they don't refuse them service. They just want to know that they're actually going to pay for their food this time because if they make them the food and they give it to them and then they walk out of the place with it, what are they going to do? They're going to chase after them. They're going to try to, you know, take the money out of their wallets by force. And, you know, then they'll claim that's racist too, right? These kids who, and I don't know how old they are, but whatever. I mean, these, these young, these African-American youths in, in this uh, Minneapolis um, Chipotle clearly are playing a game here with the staff. And and nonetheless, they put it up on social media. Everyone said, oh my gosh, it's so racist. They won't serve these young black men. Remember, these Latino minimum wage Chipotle workers are, I guess, so racist that they won't serve these, just these, just these black guys, by the way. Lots of other people going in there all the time, I'm sure. All different races getting served, no problem. Just these guys. Oh, because they've, as it comes across in the video... They've been in here before. They've probably caused problems in here before. They've probably walked out without paying for food before. And in fact, at one point in the video, the guy says, I've seen them. They don't pay for food. But you know what? Chipotle didn't wait for any of that. Chipotle fired this woman. She's humiliated. The manager who came out, humiliated, branded a racist. And it's just appalling and then as we get a little more information, uh-oh, then we find out that, guess what? These individuals, uh, one in particular, have some really interesting 
uh, have some really interesting postings on social media. Uh, the one who actually put, I'm trying to find his name, the one who actually put the, yeah, this was out of Chipotle in St. Paul, sorry, I think I said Minneapolis, in St. Paul, Minnesota, Masood Ali, he's the one who's claiming that he was uh, victimized here, Masood Ali, and he has a very interesting habit on social media of saying things like, quote, dine and dash is forever interesting. That was in July 2015. He also wrote, Hey, man, I think Chipotle catching up to us, fam. Should we change locations? And yo, what should we do about the other thing? That was from 2016. In 2015, if you a real ass blank, we go to Applebee's and eat as much as we can and then tip the lady 20 cents and walk the blank out. Oh, wait a second. You mean this guy was talking and boasting about how he does dine and dash, which means you order food and run out and don't pay for it, and how funny it is? Oh, wait, I'm just, I'm so shocked. I thought this was just terrible racism. I thought he's being so racist. Of course, he put out on his Twitter account, quote, can a group of young, well-established African-American get a bite to eat after a long workout session at Chipotle? So he went to their corporate on Twitter and to try to get these people in trouble who were just on to him. Yeah, that's right. This, this guy was planning a dine and dash. That's what all indications are. The staff recognized them. He's done it before. They knew he was going to do it again. They're not there for free, okay? They're not there to amuse a group of young African-Americans or anybody who shows up and wants to take food without paying for it. Dine and dash is a crime. It's stealing. Now, I'm not going to act like it's, you know, treason and the guy should get life in prison. I'm not saying it's the worst crime ever or anything, but it is a crime and it's not okay. It's essentially shoplifting. And this guy not only allegedly had done this in the past, but brags about it. I mean, we can put two and two together here. Now Chipotle is reconsidering, oh yeah, maybe we shouldn't have fired this woman summarily. Maybe we should have given a little more thought to this. But you see, this is where the reality of corporate America and American culture is now. The mere allegation the mere allegation of racism is enough for somebody to be punished and to be ruined right away. And I'm sorry, but you know this isn't an isolated incident. You see people that weaponize allegations of racism on a regular basis. You see this happening. And the people that do this, I mean, the people that claim there's racism where there is no racism, never suffer any real consequences for it. You know, they always manage to skate by with, oh, I'm... I was raising awareness, or maybe it was a misunderstanding on my part. No, no. This is a very real, very dangerous, very damaging thing to intentionally lie and claim that there's racism where there is no racism. This really affects people's lives. This has a very real impact on them. And this needs to be called out. This needs to uh, be something for which there are consequences. So, uh, you know, this story, is, it's just exactly what you... Uh, what you would expect these days in the current climate where all a guy has to do is say they won't serve me because I'm black at a Chipotle and immediately everyone goes, oh my gosh, it's racist and this person must be fired. I mean, if you look, the staff at this Chipotle is, is, is my, at least the staff you see in the video, all minority. There's an African-American and three Latino or Hispanic employees. And we're to believe that they just suddenly developed a case of the racism here. Oh, I'm just suddenly so racist against these couple of guys who come in. They've got the video out. They're making a scene, 
And it's really vindictive what this guy Masood Ali did. It's disgusting. All right, it's very clear that there was no racist intent here at all. And in fact, it's clear to me, based on the totality of circumstances, that this guy was trying to be a crook, trying to be a criminal, trying to steal from people that are working hard for not very much money and not a whole lot of respect. And damn it, in this country, we should take the side of the people who are on the other side of the counter, who are doing their jobs, who are trying to feed their families, who aren't being racist, who just don't want to be taken advantage of, whether they're Latino or African-American or anything else. That's who we should be looking to support in a case like this. We shouldn't be saying, oh, well, just because a guy says it's racist, we all have to run and cry about it. Chipotle may rehire this person. This woman, I mean, I hope she brings a wrongful termination suit against Chipotle. Chipotle should feel this in the pocketbook. There was nothing racist about these incident, about this incident. The individuals here were acting in a classless, inflammatory fashion. They were playing the race card. They knew they were doing it, and the whole thing's a disgrace, and they should be held accountable for it. Speaking of classless and playing the race card, CNN. we got a segment from CNN coming up here in a moment. We'll see exactly that. Stay with me. You know, there's what qualifies as racism in America, or at least how people will abuse accusations of racism. And then there's what qualifies for racism when you have a panel of, I don't even know what you'd call them, analysts, imbeciles over at CNN. And this was among the worst panels I've seen at CNN in a long time. Don Lemon Show, which is a, a an ongoing audio and visual dumpster fire on cable news had Kirsten Powers on, who I remember at Fox used to take this kind of measured, somewhat normal Democrat tone. And I guess she just figured the paychecks get bigger if you become an all-out social justice lunatic, because this is the kind of stuff she says now at CNN. Play it. Yes, Kirsten, we start with you. There's been a lot of talk about why white women support President Trump despite of, or perhaps because of, his policies and his tone. What's your take on this? Well, I think there's a lot of different ways that we have to look at this. I think one of the first things is that people will say uh, that they they support him for reasons other than his racist language, which we don't have time to go through. But there's all sorts of things starting from the launch of his campaign all the way up into the latest campaign, the way he demonized, uh, you know, people trying to come to our country on the caravan. And they'll say, well, I'm not racist. I just voted for him because, you know, I I, I didn't like Hillary Clinton or uh, and I just want to say that that's not that doesn't make you not racist. It actually makes you racist. If you support somebody who does racist things, that makes you racist. So I just want to establish that. I just want to establish that Kirsten Powers is not very smart. There's that. That's all I need to hear from her to know. She's not not a very bright person because she just laid out the rationale for voting for Trump that has nothing to do with race. And then she claims, oh, no, you are a racist if you vote for him because he does racist things. What are the racist things that he's done, by the way? Securing the border? Enforcing immigration law? So is Congress racist, too? What are the racist acts? I mean, I, you know, this is continuing with the theme, just like with uh, Commander Crenshaw, uh, Congressman Crenshaw now, when he says, okay, undermining democracy, how? I want to ask Kirsten Power, undermine, or rather, being racist, How? How is Trump doing racist things? What are the racist things that he does? You don't like what he says sometimes? You think it's racially insensitive? That's not the same thing as doing racist things. What are the racist things that he does? But she's 
not particularly bright, as I've said, and does not make very sound arguments. And so here we are with her calling all Trump supporters racist. That is what she did. She said all Trump supporters are racist. That's what this woman just said on CNN without challenge from anybody, including the anchor, by the way. Oh, and then she keeps going with the idiot parade. Why white women do it, I think we have to recognize that white men are doing it as well. Mm. But I think sometimes we would hope that we would get better behavior from white women because white women are themselves oppressed and that they would therefore be able to uh, align themselves with other oppressed people. But I think we have to remember that the white patriarchal system actually benefits white women in a lot of ways. And they're attached to white men who are benefiting from the system that was created by them, for them, mm-hmm. and, is, and their fathers and their husbands and their brothers um, are benefiting from the system. And so they are also benefiting. I just, I just want to know, like, is Truston Power benefiting from the system too? Because if he throws in, like, power and privilege and patriarchy into a sentence, does she sound smart? Is this just a way for her to not be guilty of white privilege then by this bizarre rant about whiteness and white women and how white women are essentially disappointing. That's what this is all about. This became one of the things you'd hear on the left after this midterm election when, yes, the Democrats picked up a solid number of House seats, but they lost Senate seats and they lost some very uh, prominent, very important races. Well, who's to blame for that? Well, the left pretty squarely blamed white women who voted in considerable numbers for some of the Republican member. Trump wasn't on the ballot, but for Republican candidates in places like Georgia in the gubernatorial race, like the Senate race and governor's race in Florida. So white women are the problem. But notice how all human agency and intellectual capacity and decision making in Kirsten Powers world and, you know, Don Lemon's sitting there just letting it fly and cheering her on, I'm sure. All that is gone. It's just your skin color as a white person that determines who you're voting for, unless you're a Democrat. So unless you're a collectivist quasi-socialist these days who wants to murder babies for all nine months of a pregnancy, thinks that gender is non-binary and not biologically determined, and believes that, you know, Hillary Clinton is an ethical and good leader, unless you're that, you're one of the bad white people who is a racist. And they wonder why they don't win the white working class in critical swing states. They wonder why Democrats, after the incredible effort that the media went through to prop up Hillary Clinton, all the king's horses and all the king's men, just doing everything they could for somebody who was a crappy candidate and a crappy politician and not a very good person, Hillary Clinton. And now they just turn around and just call us racist all the time. It's so very tiresome. And what I also think is fascinating is when we tell them, you know what, this is this is tiresome. They go, see, you just want the patriarch. You just want the white privilege. It's like we can't. We have to sit and be hectored by these left wing loons all the time about white privilege and the patriarchy. And we're not even allowed to say, you know, could you tone it down just a little bit? It's not all just about whiteness all the time. It's not that, that that that's not an argument that you get to make and just you inherently sound smart. That was, that was pathetic. I mean, that was one of the worst segments on any cable news show I've seen in a while. And given that we're talking about the Don Lemon show, that is an impressive standard of crap lousiness that we're talking about here. Uh, but this is what they do. They have all these panels. They bring on these a lot of the time white liberal Democrats who just trash everybody who votes for Trump as racist 
and all white women who are voting for Trump, it must not be because, I don't know, maybe they're pro-life and don't want to vote for the psychotically anti-fetus, anti-baby, Planned Parenthood Democrat Party, right? I mean, you know, there can't be any real rational reasons why white women would vote for Trump. No, it's just because their white husbands tell them to. I mean, it's appalling what that woman said. It's really some of the dumbest crap I've seen on TV, but... You know, she's always been a third tier intellect on on TV. I mean, she was on at Fox basically to lose all the time, and she was good at that. Just a quick note here, team. While while the media is focused on the trials and tribulations of Jim Acosta, First Amendment martyr, oh my gosh, he has to stop and check in with security at the White House like a common plebeian. Oh, it's so horrifying. Yeah, that's right. This is all about whether Acosta can be treated like the riffraff, i.e. the rest of people in America who don't have special access to the White House through a hard pass. Forget that for a moment, though. There's something much more important that the media doesn't really want to cover, and I think it's because if they did, people would start drawing some very important conclusions. There are thousands of people right now at the U.S.-Mexico border in Tijuana, Uh, I know we all say Tijuana in this country, but I'm supposed to say Tijuana. Thousands of people. And there's a Sky News piece on how, quote, the plight of migrants at Mexico border bears hallmarks of the Syrian exodus. There's already 2,000 living in makeshift camps at the uh, Tijuana border. I like to say Tijuana. It's more fun, but at the Tijuana border. And this is what they're really not telling you. There are thousands more on the way. And, oh, by the way, there are Mexicans who are currently protesting uh, against all these people showing up. They, they don't want this problem there. So you have Mexicans now who are complaining about the refugee camps that are popping up because there's outbreaks of disease, there's crime, there are problems that come from thousands of people that are living in these close quarters and not in sanitary, safe conditions. So I just want to know, are the Mexicans who are openly protesting, I mean, they're actually going out and holding up signs and chanting how they don't want any more migrants to show up because the migrants that don't get across the border are are in their communities now, and they're from Honduras and Guatemala, they're from Central America. Are those Mexicans who don't want those problems racist? Are the Mexicans racist against Guatemalans now? Is that... Are the Mexicans racist against Hondurans? I just need the left to explain this to me. I need someone on the left to come along and tell me, oh, oh, it's okay for Mexicans to want their communities to uh, not have to deal with an influx of migrants who have uh, a lot of you know needs, uh, who are going to be, in many cases, dealing with illnesses and bringing a lot of problems with them and poverty. Uh, and lawlessness and all of that and just the processing and the administrative effort required to to deal with them. Oh, no, Mexicans are allowed to do that without being called racist. But anyone in America, irrespective of race, who says we don't want migrant caravans just showing up at the border, claiming asylum and abusing our system to get in, that's inherently racist. Yeah, there's a reason why they're not covering this. It's also because they were mocking us. They were mocking the right and Trump and everybody for bringing up these caravans maybe even a week ago. They were saying, oh, what happened to the caravans? There's no caravans. Oh, they're a thousand miles away. No, actually, there are already thousands of them at the border. 
So what's the answer going to be from the left? By the way, this problem is going to get worse because people are figuring out that there really is no clear fix to the issue right now. It's a, it's a problem of processing much more than it's a problem of preventing them from even getting across in the first place uh, in terms of the people that are claiming asylum. If they show up at a port of entry, they go through a process. And Trump may try to defeat that with an executive order, but we know what will happen. A federal court, just like happens time and time again, will overrule Trump on this issue and it'll go into the courts. In the meantime, just like with the Acosta press pass issue, you'll probably have a temporary stay from the judge about what can and cannot happen uh, with regard to the border and overruling Trump policy in the process. So that's, I think, very important to remember here. And then there's one more thing that you're really not seeing anyone talk about, but I think that this should get a lot more attention. There are rumblings that there could be caravans getting together even far south of Central America. According to this Sky News piece, quote, it is rumored that caravans in other countries are being formed up. Brazil and Venezuela have been mentioned, and they are ripe for a mass exodus. My friends, what happens if this gets to be a much bigger issue? What if all of a sudden caravans turn into tens of thousands of people showing up at the border, all claiming asylum? What do we do with the legal process that we have in place that allows people to claim asylum in this way? What are Democrats going to say? This is going to be quite a test for the Trump administration. I know that they're building additional barriers and fences in places, but they don't have a full-on wall. And remember, the wall is not the issue when you're talking about people that present themselves at a port of entry. The issue is the system that we have in place and the way that the laws are currently interpreted. But if we start having caravans showing up from Venezuela, from Brazil, I mean, this is... This is a huge problem. And I don't think anybody on the left is seriously considering the ramifications. And, th- and those who are just want the they just want the dissolution of this country to, to occur much more rapidly than it would otherwise uh, to destroy sovereignty by being open borders extremists. That's what's happening. here. That's what we see unfolding. I'll have more on this tomorrow. Roll call up next. The show ain't over yet, folks. It's time for Roll Call. Man, I can't believe it's already Thanksgiving week. Before you know it's going to be Christmas, then Buck's birthday, which should be a national holiday, and then we will be in the midst of 2019 OM to the G. Before I get into Roll Call today, let me say a happy birthday to my incredible little brother Keats. He is the most awesome, solid, patriotic, trustworthy, honorable dude any human being could ever ask to be around or meet. He is an inspiration. He kicks butt in every way, and he's just the greatest guy. Happy birthday, Keats. Big brother loves you, and I just wanted to say that in front of the whole country. Also, got a birthday coming up. My other brother this week as well, but we'll we'll get to him on his birthday. All right, team. Uh, First up here in the roll call, we have Richard who writes, I'm seeing Eric Bollert whining on Twitter about how no one is talking about 60 million people voting Democrat in 2018, as opposed to 45 million voting Republican in 2010. 
What do you think about that? Uh, well, the numbers are overall going up, but then again, so is population. Uh, and I don't even know who Eric Bollard is, so I can't speak to any specificity of of the individual. But uh, yeah, look, de- Democrats have a heads they win, tails we lose attitude when it comes to elections. That's just how they do things. So don't be surprised at all. Uh, Stephen writes, thank you for putting my oddball comments on your show. You didn't have to. Just a tip. Redbeard means you are part Viking, shields high. Uh, well, Stephen, thank you for telling me that. I'm pretty sure that red hair in general is a genetic mutation, but I'll take the Viking thing because that's a cooler story, and I like cool stories. Kelvan. Cool name, Kelvan. Buck, I want to reach out and say how proud you make me for our generation. I wanted my first family to be more of a review and high five, but this is all I have at the moment. Great job. Keep that shield high and give them hell. I'll be listening from the Anchorage Freedom Observation Hut, 1400 Alaska time. Cheers, bud, to a great cup of black-on-black-on-slate-black-rifle coffee. Take care. Calvin, thank you so much for the kind note, man. I love having my fellow millennials, especially my fellow graybeard millennials, or redbeard millennials, as the case may be, as we are finding out now. Uh, Appreciate very much that you wrote in, taking the time to say high-five, high-five right back to you, and uh, stay warm up in Anchorage. Go ahead, butt some grizzly bears. Chuck writes, Buck. Hey, Buck, it's Chuck. Or Chuck, it's Buck. On your journey to beardom, you encounter many obstacles. My experiences may help you. First, wash your fur buddy with a shampoo and conditioner recommended for beards, not just standard hair shampoo. Condition with a similar product. I use a leave-in conditioner right after a shower and comb down to the skin vigorously with a fine-tooth comb. Dead skin is the culprit of itching and irritation. Do this and you'll be happy with your furry friend, Shields High Chuck. Chuck, thank you so much. Man, I'm getting a lot of beard advice. I feel like I might actually have to step up on this one. By the way, I've got an interview tomorrow with really Willie Robertson of Duck Dynasty. Speaking about beards, that'll be on Hill.TV. Uh, those Duck Dynasty guys, I can just tell you this. Everybody that I know who deals with them has ever dealt with them in media just always talks about what a bunch of awesome guys they are. Like real cool, low-key, down-to-earth, funny Good, good dudes. So what you see on TV is apparently what you get in real life. Nathan writes, hey, Buck. Okay, more on beards. All right, thank you, Nathan. He's more on itchy beards. Man, you guys have a lot of beard advice. Randy writes, you keep saying that we're not savages. Stop disparaging your fan base. Love you, brother. Kosher pickles go on the cheeseburger. Olives on the side. We're not degenerates. You know, Randy, you obviously have fantastic taste in radio shows, but I don't know if you have fantastic taste in salted cucumbers placement on your plate vis-a-vis a hamburger because we all need to understand that the pickle is not necessary with the burger on it. You want to go on the side? That's cool. You, you want your, your pickle to be your side piece? I got no problem with that. But to put to assume, as some places do, that sliced pickle should go on top of the burger, and I would note some don't even mention this. Sometimes you'll say, I want a bacon cheeseburger. Oh, look at that. There's some wet, soggy, salty, green sludge on top of my otherwise perfectly charred burger with its pink, juicy inside because, of course, I order it medium rare, if not rare. Because as Randy points out, I am not a savage. Uh, William writes, Hey, Buck, you need to play Britney Spears' Oops, I Did It Again before you start talking about Democrats stealing elections. Uh, William? I appreciate hearing from you. I'm not sure 
Your career as a DJ is going to go particularly far, but I do like that you're unleashing your creativity here in Roll Call. So thank you for that. I still remember when that Britney Spears song came out, man. That was that was for a short while something of a cultural phenomenon. I had a lot of friends who had, uh, and remember, we were we were. I'm I think Britney Spears' age, or at least within a year or two of it. Uh, so I had friends who had Britney Spears posters up in their bedrooms, and she was uh, she was an icon. I, I'm more of a Jessica Biel playing Mary Camden in Seventh Heaven fan because she was again my peer. Uh, I think she's also my age. And I thought when I was in high school and Mary Camden was in high school, meaning the character also played by somebody who was of high school age at the time, I thought she was the perfect woman. I really did. Uh, I, was, I was a huge Mary Camden fan. Uh, Johan writes, Buck, forget the beard, mustache, and long hair. I have tried all three, and I'm happiest removing all. The girls think you look younger, clean-shaven. Long hair belongs on girls. Wow, Johan, going for it, my friend. You are... Uh, you're going after the long hair there. Huh? I'm not a long hair guy, I will say. I used to let my hair get a little too long, and it would I'd have to kind of flop it over to one side, and the swoop was unwieldy. And just advice to the gentleman out there with a lot of hair, you don't want an unwieldy swoop. You know, you need the swoop to be within certain parameters. You need it to operate with a certain mission set. Sharon, hey, Buck, listen to Jimmy Buffett's cheeseburger song. It's got to have pickles. You can have them on the side, too, but on the burger is good. Why didn't the restaurant offer you gluten-free buns? Sharon, you bring up a few interesting points here. First of all, on the pickles. You are entitled to your opinion because you are entitled to be wrong. Pickles should not be on the burger. Nonetheless, thank you for writing in on that one. As to gluten-free buns, I very, very rarely, very rarely order the gluten-free bun because usually it's an afterthought. And they pull it out of the freezer and it's, you know, they don't, they don't really care about their gluten-free buns at most places. And a bad bun ruins a burger, you know. So if you go to a place that's got a good burger and you're not sure if they're going to throw a crappy gluten-free bun on it, you got to go with just the burger. Because like I said, bad bun equals bad burger. Uh, and once you've taken a bite out of it, then you don't want to have to remove it and all the other stuff. So very important there. Harry writes, hey, Buck, here's something to discuss on your show. Uh, do not realize, do leftists not realize their insane beliefs? That is a rhetorical question. The same teacher be arrest, arrested for observing a girl of that age under naked under any other circumstance. Shields high. Harry, you know, Harry, I, I guess you might have missed that I discussed that story on the show. By way of quick recap, a guy got in trouble because he would not observe a female transgender to male who was, I think, 14 years old, who was changing, including, I, I would assume, nudity in the locker room. And he did not want to be there because this person is, is, is anatomically female. And so this teacher was uncomfortable as an adult male observing an underage, undressed female, even though the female claims to be male, and the school board punished him. And you're right. It's, it is crazy. This is a crazy belief. This is not a thing that a normal person would have a hard time solving. But the left, uh, as in case you needed me to explain this, the left is not normal, my friends. Andrea writes, hope you like Outlaw King. I am a descendant of both Robert the Bruce and King Edward the First, the Third, and the Second. Andrea. Hey, Andrea. Good to hear from you. I watched Outlaw King. I've got some thoughts, okay? I've got some thoughts. First of all, 
they're starting with such a built-in audience because people like me love Braveheart so much. Braveheart's probably my favorite movie of all time. Numero uno, all right? Number one favorite movie of all time. So when you're going to make a movie that's essentially a, in terms of storyline and history, a sequel to Braveheart, you're going to get me interested. Now, why do you cast, with all the great Scottish actors out there, I mean, Gerard Butler, of course, comes to mind from his role in 300 and others, but there are many, many others. Of all the great actors out there to play Robert de Bruce, why, oh why, would you cast Chris Pine, who's essentially a teen heartthrob all grown up? Why put him in that role? He's an American, and his Scottish accent is just not good enough. So that's my first criticism of the movie. The second criticism is none of the characters are particularly well-developed. It feels like it's kind of rushing through it all, and you know what the conclusion of the story is going to be, so I just don't think, I think the only really good performance you get in that movie comes from the guy who plays Edward II, Edward Longshanks, who, by the way, is also um, the, uh, I forget his name, Stannis Baratheon, the same actor who plays Stannis Baratheon from Game of Thrones. That's who plays Longshanks. And he, he does a good job. Everyone else is pretty forgettable, honestly. So in that, in that regard, it's a little disappointing. So I thought it was just okay. Uh, that's, that's my, that's my review of the movie. I, I wish I could tell you it was awesome, run out and see it, but the Netflix Outlaw King, it's a, for me, it's a B, maybe a B minus. On that note, another movie that Buck trashes. I know, I know some of you are already saying it. Uh, team excited to be with you today and tomorrow this week, live from DC in the hut. I will talk to you tomorrow. Shield time. There's a lot of nonsense from these left-leaning social media sites these days that are engaging in shadow banning and all kinds of stuff. Snippy.com doesn't do any of that. If you've looked at Snippy.com and left, look at Snippy again. Thousands of my listeners have joined Snippy.com, expressing their opinions and stirring up lively conversations. You see, Snippy's an unbiased media platform that's all about conversation and community. They don't only encourage freedom of expression, but they guarantee users on Snippy.com the ability to discuss topics freely without suppression from administrators. You know, it's a place where everyone's free to express their thoughts and share their opinions. Totally free to join, open to everyone. Join us at snippy.com. Let your opinion matter. No shadow banning and no suppression of conservative thought ever. Now with an updated user interface and exciting new features, also available in the Apple App Store and now available for Android. Snippy is your new alternative social media. Start an account today. Totally free to join, free to post. Snippy.com.